Well, good morning again, church. Merry Christmas. So glad for everybody who was able to make it out this morning. We know a, a lot of illness is going around, a lot of people getting hit hard, and so, uh, you know, let's remember to keep them all in prayer, because this is just bad timing, you know, Christmas, for, uh, for this stuff to be going around. That being said, what, what we're here to do right now is to open up our Bibles and hear from our God. And so I'll, I will be preaching from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 2, verse 12. I know it's a, a big chunk. Um, the title of the sermon is The Meaning of Christmas. And if you are physically able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. This is what the Word of God says. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them, at, asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go. And search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led, it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And falling to their knees, they worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This is the word of God. Let's go to uh, the God of the word in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for everything, for you being the creator and maker of heaven and earth, the creator of us. We thank you, Lord, for also sending Jesus into this world to seek and save sinners like us. That is what Christmas is all about. 
And so, Lord, may we see that from this text. May you uh, just give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what is in your word. Please remove me as much as possible. Lord, we pray that if there's any that do not know you today, that you save them today. If there are those who are backslidden, that you, you pull them back in to the fold, Lord. And we pray in everything that you would be glorified. And we pray that your people will be edified. And we just pray all these things to you, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Well, Merry Christmas again. Glad to, to see everybody here this morning. And the reason that I'm glad is I have the privilege of delivering a very important message from the Lord. The reason why this message is so important is aptly illustrated by Charlie Brown in the Christmas special of 1965. See, Charlie Brown, most of you remember, was asked to direct the Christmas play. And he was looking for inspiration because he wanted to know what Christmas was all about. But everywhere, even in 1965, it seemed like it was about commercialization. It was about shopping. It's the same thing today. I would just say today is probably even worse. So Charlie Brown was disillusioned. He needed to know the truth. And he discovered what it was all about when his friend Linus read the one famous passage about the birth of Christ from the Gospel of Luke. And after hearing the word of God, Charlie Brown finally knew what Christmas was all about. And you know what? He learned that it was not about Ralphie's quest to obtain an official Red Ryder Carbon Action 200 shot range model air rifle. He'll shoot his eye out. We all know that. Christmas is so much more important than that. Like Charlie Brown, there are many in this room or listening online or listening in their car that might not know what Christmas is truly about. Now, obviously, if you're in a church building on a Sunday morning listening to a sermon on Christmas Eve, you're probably guessing that what I'm going to say is that Christmas is about the birth of Christ. And you'd be right if you're thinking I was leading up to say, no, no, that is exactly what it's about. That's exactly what I'm going to say. We're going to look at what, what the Bible and the book of Matthew tells us about the birth of Christ. And honestly, the, the point of the text is both simple and profound. And so, so here's the point for you. The birth of Christ is of eternal significance, and it requires a response. That's what we're going to see in this text. The birth of Christ is of eternal significance. That's the rest of chapter 1. And it requires a response. That's the first part of chapter 2. And so with that, let's talk about the meaning of Christmas. Please look with me at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1. Here's what it says. Matthew says, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Okay, so right here, we get the backdrop to the birth of the Savior. Matthew tells us directly that this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. And for those who may not know, the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his title. It is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one who is promised all throughout the Bible. And Matthew is telling us that this is how the promised Messiah came into the world. So how did it happen? Well, it happened the way that God often does things. See, humans expect something loud and obvious. 
But God always does it differently than we expect, doesn't he? And he always subverts our expectations. See, we would naturally think that the promised one would be born to a mighty king, live in a great palace, and have a giant army behind him. But instead, God picks a betrothed teenage girl. She's probably 15, 16 years old. She was poor. She was from Galilee, which was a backwater area of Israel. It was like the high desert, right? This was a time when being pregnant outside of marriage could carry the death penalty. And yet here she was, pregnant and unmarried. More baffling is she was a virgin. The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is the one who miraculously conceived the Savior in her womb. So she was not an immoral girl. She was not a fornicator. She was a good kid. But who's going to believe that someone just gets pregnant? Because that's impossible, naturally, right? So nobody's going to just believe somebody just is pregnant. She's in a tough spot. Now, Joseph, the man that she's supposed to marry, he finds out she's pregnant. Obviously, he assumes the worst. I mean, who wouldn't in that situation? He assumes she was unfaithful. So he's like, well, I'm not going to marry her now. Forget it. And so... Because of that, he's got two options. He could turn her over to the authorities as an immoral woman, which would most likely lead to her execution, or he could keep the whole thing quiet. Those are his two options. Well, Joseph was a nice guy. He did not want to see her get hurt, even though he thought she was unfaithful. So what he was going to do was end the betrothal secretly. Now, I need to talk a little bit about betrothal because it's different than what an engagement is in our society. Back then, you got engaged a lot younger, but then a year before the marriage, you got betrothed. Okay, so you get betrothed, and at that point, you're actually technically married. You're promised to each other, but you don't live together yet. You still live with your folks, but you are now contractually obligated to marry each other, and you're considered married, or at least the beginning stages of the marriage. And then a year later, you have the wedding day, which finalizes it. And after that, then yes, the couple moves in together and they live as a married couple. Okay, but since you were considered married in that year between betrothal and wedding day, if you did have relations with someone else in that time, it was not fornication, it was adultery. Okay, and so therefore it carried the death penalty. And since the betrothal was the beginning stage of a marriage, it took a divorce to get out of the betrothal. And the reason I say that is you might be confused since it said he was engaged, but now he's seeking to secretly divorce her. That's why. To get out of a betrothal back then, it took a divorce. And that's what Joseph was going to opt for only quietly. Well, fortunately, God will have an angel intervene. Look at verse 20. It says, but after... After he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, before Joseph could do anything rash, this angel says, Joseph, you need to marry this woman. Take her as your wife. She has not been unfaithful. The child that is in her womb was conceived by none other than the Holy Spirit. That means this child is the son of God. Now, imagine if you're Joseph and you got that message. If God was going to bring into the world his only begotten son, 
How mind-blowing would it be for an angel to tell you that you are going to be the stepdad that is responsible for raising him? That would be an earth-shattering event, especially if you're Joseph, because he was a poor carpenter, maybe a stonemason. People debate over the Greek word, but I figure he was a carpenter. He was a poor carpenter from backwater Galilee. How is he going to raise the son of God? Joseph would probably think, I'm a nobody. I'm a poor nobody. Why me? But the answer to why me is found in the fact that the angel called him, quote, son of David, end quote. Joseph is a direct descendant from King David, and that's significant. He is the legal heir to the throne of King David. Now, that throne has been long gone. It was destroyed almost 600 years earlier by the Babylonians. So the sons of David have not sat on the throne in a very long time. They, for all practical purposes, they were nobodies now. But God doesn't care how society esteems them. God always keeps his promises. And God promised David and the rest of Israel multiple times that the Messiah would be the true king and he would be descended from the royal line of King David. Furthermore, in addition to Joseph being a descendant of King David, Mary was a descendant as well, albeit from a slightly different line. So Jesus has David's bloodline through Mary, and he has David's royal lineage through Joseph. As soon as Joseph names him, that is a formal adoption. And back then, they weren't talking about DNA or, you know, are you a biological son? If you're adopted, you were the heir to everything, including the lineage. So he does have the blood of David through Mary. He's got the royal line through Joseph. He inherits it through Joseph. Now, my point is people in that day would never expect the Savior to come from these humble origins. But it turns out when you look closely, Mary and Joseph were the right people. Now, in verse 21, the angel tells Joseph the purpose of this all. This is the most important verse in our entire text. It says this. It says, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And that's the gospel right there. This is why Jesus came. He came to save his people from their sins. That is the meaning of Christmas. That's what it's all about. Not the commercialism, not the presents, not the turkey, as much as I love all that stuff. Okay, those are all good things we could add on top of it. But this is about salvation. That's what Christmas is all about. You see, Jesus came into the world to save people from their sins. So you might be asking, well, who needs saving? You do. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All, not some, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, all are guilty. Romans 6, 23 says, The wages of sin is death. That's what we've all earned. So how can guilty sinners like us face a holy and perfect and just God? How could we face him without being utterly destroyed? Well, the only way would be if God chooses to show mercy. But because he's just he can't just turn a blind eye to this. And this is, the coming of Christ is all wrapped up into this. You see, the promises, uh, yeah, so, so only if God chooses to show mercy. And so again, the question is, how can God, who is just, show mercy if we're all guilty? It's because of this baby that was born 2,000 years ago. See, the promises made all the way from the beginning of the Bible were about to be fulfilled. The king was coming. 
But before he could come as our glorious king, he first had to come as our humble savior. So he came in a humble way rather than in a glorious way. He came from a humble place, a couple of peasants. Later, he will come with a crown on the clouds with angelic armies behind him. Very different. But this first time, he comes in humility. He came with a difficult mission to save his people from their sins. And so I guess that then poses another question. If he comes to save his people from their sins, who are his people? John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming to to be baptized, this is what John the Baptist declared in uh, John chapter 1, verse 29. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that gives us the answer right there. Jesus removes the sin not just of Israel, but for people of every nation. That's what the world means. That's how they would have understood it. You had Israel and you had the nations. If you're saving people from the whole world, then it's from Israel and the nations. So to put it plainly, Jesus saves people from their sins and his people refers to everyone who believes on him as Lord, no matter what nation they come from. You don't have to be born an Israelite. Okay, whatever nation you come from, if you believe on Jesus, you are his people and you will be saved. So Jesus came as the Savior. Now, I do need to throw this out there. He does not save unbelievers from their sins. And they are not his people. Why? Because they don't believe. Okay, this is only a gift that is given to his people. And his people are only those who believe. Now, I'll come back to that a little later. The point that Matthew is making right now is this, that the Savior was coming and he came for one purpose, and that's to glorify God the Father by saving a people for God. And the way he was going to do that was by removing their sins. Now, the text continues by telling us that this was all happening as a fulfillment of the long-awaited promises. So look at verses 22 and 23 of chapter 1. It says, the angel says, now all this, actually this is Matthew saying this, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God is with us. That is a prophecy that was penned by the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier. And now it is receiving its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ the Lord. So, as Joseph sat baffled at what he was hearing, namely, that God miraculously conceived a child in the womb of his future wife, who's a virgin, this angel's reminding Joseph in his bewilderment that you shouldn't be so bewildered because this is prophecy. This, is, this should be an expectation. Did not the prophet say the virgin would give birth to a son? Now, why? Why would a virgin give birth to a son? The big hint is found in the identity of the child. Isaiah said the child would be named Emmanuel, or in Hebrew, Emmanuel, which simply means God with us. That is the name of this child. The child was no mere human. The child is God in the flesh. He is God with us. That is why he could not have a human father. To be a man, he had to have a human mother. But to be the son of God, he could have no human father. And so that's why it's happening like this. And again, it's found in the prophets. 
Now, what's happening here is the greatest miracle in all of history. It is what we Christians call the incarnation of God. The God of the universe who is infinite and is in every place all at once was also about to add to himself a human nature. The God who is infinite was now to become finite man. And yet, he was still infinite. He would remain the infinite God. It's mind-blowing that God would enter his own creation as a man so that he could save men. And that at the exact same time, God would be both infinite God and finite man. Two completely different natures subsisting in the one person, the second person of the Trinity. That's the theologically technical way to describe it. It's not a mixture of divinity and humanity where he's a demigod. No, he is infinite God of gods, but at the same time, finite man. Both at the same time. Big mystery, amazing, but it's the truth. The very thing that happened in that womb of Mary was God himself taking on flesh so that he could be born as we are and walk this world as we do. But he would do it as the only man that at the exact same time is also God. It's just crazy, right? Mind-blowing. He is Emmanuel, God with us. John the Apostle in his gospel puts it this way. He opens in John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. And then verse 14 this way, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the only one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, that makes it clear. Jesus is God. He created the whole universe, and he becomes flesh. It also makes it clear that God is more than one person eternally. You have the Father who sends the Son. The Son is from the Father, so they can't be the same person. The Word was God, but the Word was with God. So this rules out any heretics that try to say that, that Jesus is just a mode of God. But I don't want to get too much into that. The, the, the fact of the matter is, what John is saying is Jesus is the very God of gods, sent by the Father, and he becomes a man. And, and I say all that just to say that God is beyond our ability to truly comprehend. He just is. There's only one God. But the Bible teaches us again and again that that one God exists simultaneously as three persons who are co-equal, co-eternal. The one God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son, who has always existed as God, decided to enter his own creation as a man. Paul the Apostle describes it for us this way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. He says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. I mean, clear as day, clear as day. So truly, the son to be born was in fact Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The same Isaiah that prophesied of this Emmanuel being born from the virgin in Isaiah 7:14, two chapters later will say this of the same child. He says in Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
pretty much all these, these titles that are directed towards God are being directed towards him to show that this, this child is also God. So what we can see is that God intended to save people from their sin by himself becoming a man to carry out this rescue mission. In light of this great truth, in light of the fact that the promises were now about to be fulfilled, we see in Joseph an obedient response. Let's look at verses 24 and verses 25. It says, when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. So Joseph obeyed. He clearly obeyed there. Now, I find it interesting that the angel told Joseph to name the child Jesus. In Hebrew, his name is Yeshua. You, you've heard people say that a couple times here. That is what Jesus would have answered to, Yeshua. That's his Hebrew name. It means God is our salvation. So I want you to think about that. The very name Jesus or Yeshua means Savior, and Christ means Messiah. So what is Jesus' name? Savior Messiah, the one who was born into this world from a virgin 2,000 years ago was Savior Messiah. That is who we celebrate on Christmas, or today, Christmas Eve, but we'll celebrate him again tomorrow. We celebrate this every day. We just pick one season, though, where we, we especially think about it. Now, at the beginning, I said that the text shows us that the birth of Christ is of eternal significance, and it requires a response. I think up to this point, we've seen the eternal significance of the birth of Christ, God becoming man to save us. So then what we have left to do is ask and answer, what kind of response does this require from us? And it's to that we now turn. We will see that in the remainder of our text. And so let's begin looking at chapter 2. In verses 1 and 2, we see the initial response of the wise men from the east. And so what it says is, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. That's their response. Now, a little, little bit of discussion needs to, to ensue here because there's a lot of mystery about surrounding what we just read. But the point's simple enough. God signaled that the promised one had arrived. He gave the signal to people who were far away. He signaled it with a star. Now, whether or not this was a real star in the heavens or instead was an angel appearing as a star that was leading them on a very specific trail, that is something that is debated. It's still debated. What I'm going to tell you this morning is it's not really that important. The most important thing is they saw something. They saw something. And something was telling them that the king of the Jews was born. Now, the next mystery is who are these guys? A lot of mystery surrounds the wise men. Where did they come from? How many were there? Well, the word wise men is magi, and in the Greek, it's, it's plural, magoi. Um, and so the, the thing is, the magi themselves were astronomers from the old Persian Empire, which at this time was called the Parthian Empire. They were scholars. Now, there is nothing in our text that tells us they were three kings. So I'm sorry to ruin it for you, but that Christmas song got it wrong, okay? There's nothing that tells us there's three kings. There's nothing that tells us their names were Balthazar, Caspar, and Melchior. We have no idea what their names were. Somebody made that up, okay? I mean, 
of all the names they could have come up with, you know, Louie, Dewey, and Huey, but Balthazar, Caspar, and Melchior, okay, you know, but anyhow, there's also nothing to tell us that there was three. As I said, the word is plural, which means there's at least two, but there could have been two, there could have been three, there could have been ten, there could have been even more. Now, we will see later that they give Jesus three very expensive gifts, and so some people assume three gifts means three magi, because three gifts imply three gift givers. That's reasonable, but that's not necessary. Two men could give three gifts, or ten could pitch in to give three expensive gifts. And so the, the, the point is, this doesn't tell us how many there were, and I'm not going to speculate. For one reason or another, though, these, these men, how many ever there were, they were told to expect the birth of the king of the Jews. There was not a king of the Jews, a legitimate one, in nearly 600 years. There was a man named King Herod, as we're going to see, but he was not a Jew. He took the title for himself from the Romans, who were the oppressors, so nobody really counted him as king of the Jews. He was not a true son of David. There hadn't been a true son of David, as I've said, on the throne in centuries. Now, why these men from the east were looking for the son of David, born king of the Jews, again, that's something we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Some people speculate this goes back five, six hundred years to the prophet Daniel. See, Daniel was exiled to Babylon. He became the head of the Magi. And then we know Daniel gave some very specific prophecies about when the Messiah would come into the world. And they all came true with perfect precision. So some would say maybe Daniel trained up a small group within that Magi, and they now knew this was the time. Uh, that's possible. That's possible. We can't say for 100% sure. Whatever the case, these men came to see the king of the Jews, whom they now knew had finally been born. Now, I want you to think about this in terms of a response. The Savior was born and here you have some foreigners traveling over a thousand miles on foot. They didn't have cars. They didn't have trains. They didn't have instant transmission. If you're a Dragon Ball Z fan. Anyway, they didn't have any of that. They had to go on foot with sandals. I mean, they might have some camels helping them. But over a thousand miles on foot. Not only to see the Savior, but they travel that far so they can worship him. Verse 2 ended by saying, we have come to worship him. Keep that in mind, because that's not the only response that we're going to see in the text. That's the right response, but that's not the only response. You see, that imposter king I was telling you about, Herod, he shows us a very different response. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. So what, what's going on with this? Well, it's pretty simple. The current king hears the good news that the true king of the Jews had been born. He heard the wonderful news that the Savior is in the world. When, when the wise men realize this good news, they travel from afar to worship him. But when this local king hears, he doesn't move an inch. Instead, verse 3 says, quote, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him, end quote. And by all Jerusalem, it was referring mainly to the government officials that worked for him. It was his entourage. The king and his entourage were disturbed rather than happy. Shouldn't they want the Savior to be born? Shouldn't they want God to remove sin so that we could be saved? Yes. 
But Jesus's very existence is a threat to their power. If Jesus is king, then Herod is not. If Jesus is king, then everyone must bow to him and not to Herod. If Jesus is king, then people will have to repent of their sins. See, Herod could care less about the righteousness of God. All he cared about was his own wealth, his own power. And so did his followers. Jesus threatened all of that. So rather than be filled with joy that the promises were finally being fulfilled, they were upset. They were angry. Herod wanted to know where this boy king was, not so he could worship him. He had something else in mind. So he wants to know where this kid's going to be born. What does he do? He calls in the experts. And the experts bring to us the third kind of response that you could see to the birth of Christ. These experts were the scribes. They were the Hebrew scholars. They knew the Bible backward and forward. So when Herod said, hey, where is the Messiah going to be born? They immediately knew which prophecy. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. It says this, In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, they're quoting Micah chapter 5. And and they knew that Micah chapter 5, which was also written 700 years before Christ was born, they knew it made it clear that the Messiah would be born in the city that David himself came from, which was Bethlehem. Now, what's striking about their response is these theologians were totally unexcited about the coming of the king. Their job was to study the scriptures through and through. This is what they've been waiting for. This is what they supposedly live for. Shouldn't have they been the most excited that the Savior was born? Shouldn't they want to worship him? Shouldn't they be the first ones rushing to Bethlehem to see if it's true? Yet, they were apathetic. That's the word that describes them, apathy. They could care less. Let the foreigners go and check it out. We're busy. So, the three responses then to the birth of the Savior are joyful worship, paranoid anger, and total apathy. Those are the three possible responses that we're seeing in our text. Now, how did these three responses play out in these people's lives? Well, let's consider the wise men first. In verses 7 through 9, we see that they're actually going to go and see the Savior. So here's what it says. It says, Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. So pretty much, this star seemed to move positions It's kind of why I lean on it being an angel. It was moving positions, and then it rested over the very place where Jesus was at. Now, of course, Herod is hoping that these men will go find the kid and report back to Herod the exact location. He lied to them. He told them he wanted to worship the child, but we know that's not true. But the wise men, they show what the proper response looks like. In verses 10 and 11, we see this. It tells us this. It says, when they saw the star... They were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. 
Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Friends, that is what the right response looks like. They were filled with joy. They fell to their knees and on their faces and they worshiped him, which means they knew he was more than just a man. And they gave him the greatest treasures they had. I don't know if you know this, but gold, frankincense, and myrrh, this, this was extremely expensive. This was a lot of money. Most of us, in today's terms, don't have enough assets to even cover one or two of those, right? This is a lot that they gave them. They gave the greatest treasures they had. And listen, that is the only right response to the birth of the Savior. It's to come to him. It's to take joy that you know him. It's to fall down before him and worship him as Lord and King. It's to thank him for being the Savior. It's then to understand that everything we have is actually in his service. Those people laid three expensive gifts before his feet. Those missionaries we talked about laid their lives before his feet. Everything that is ours is his if you believe on Jesus. That is the right response. We lay it all before him. We don't add him to the sum of our life and sprinkle him on top as if he's another extracurricular activity. The right response is he is everything and everything else revolves in our life around him. That's what it means to receive the Savior. That's what it looks like to believe upon the Lord. Those who joyfully approach, worship, and serve their Lord with all that they have. It's they who are forgiven of all their sins. They are the ones who are his people. And it's only his people in whom he removes their sins. Now, Herod, in contrast, is not going to be forgiven. In verse 12, it tells us, And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you will see why. The angel says, don't go back to Herod, because Herod has every intent to murder this child. The Savior was born, the true king was here, and the fake king sees it as a threat, and he wants to kill him. He doesn't care about man being made right with God. He could care less about eternal life. All he cared about was his possessions and his position in this world. After Jesus' parents take him to Egypt to escape Herod, the tyrant will murder all the boys who are two years, and, two years old and younger in Bethlehem. You see, that's what the second response looks like. See, the first response was joyful worship, but the second response is paranoid anger. It manifests itself with utter hatred of God. It displays itself in the total disdain for Jesus Christ. It resorts to murder if it has to, in order to silence the word of God. Herod is just one of many tyrants who wanted to make the Savior disappear. And even today, there are many who absolutely have no tolerance for any mention of Jesus Christ. They fly off the handle if high school students pray to him publicly. They boycott stores that say Merry Christmas. They sue cities that display nativity scenes. If they find out cake bakers and photographers want to live as Christians obeying Jesus when it comes to sexuality, they want to sue these guys out of business. If they find out that a Christian club at a university actually really believes in Jesus and the Bible, they refuse to recognize the club, but they'll recognize any other kind of club. If you try to speak to them about the Lord, they shout over you. They put their finger in your face and you see all their veins popping out of their neck. They're just, they they, they just go crazy. 
They shout at you. They want you removed from society. They don't want you to be able to vote according to your beliefs because they hate Jesus so much. And you know what's weird about that? They'll say if you do vote according to your beliefs, they'll make up a label called Christian nationalism and say, look, you're a wacko, yet it's okay for them to vote according to their beliefs. We're the only ones who can't vote according to our beliefs? I don't think so. That is listening to the advice of Herod. We don't listen to fools. True Christians represent the first response. The blatant enemies of God represent the second response. But you know what? I think far more dangerous for most people is actually the third response. Because most people are going to say, well, I'm not, I don't have my veins popping out of my neck and I'm not sticking my finger in your face. I don't, I don't hate Jesus. Well, guess what? The third response of apathy is just as doomed as the second. The apathy of the scribes could care less about Jesus, the Savior. Those who hear the good news of the gospel, but then say, yeah, big deal. Or I'm glad that Jesus works for you, but I don't really need him. Or even the people who say they've accepted him, but don't live for him. That is the apathy of the scribes. And it is just as doomed as the paranoid anger of Herod. Okay, they're just as lost as those who hate the Lord. They are just as much still in their sin. Look, at the end of the day, the reason the Savior came is because we all need a Savior. Every single one of us has sinned. You don't believe me? Let's take a test. How many people in here have ever told a lie before? Everyone, right? What does that make us? Liars. How many people have ever stolen anything before? Everyone. And somebody says, no, I haven't. Yeah, you've downloaded stuff you haven't paid for. Everybody's stolen something. What does that make you? A thief. Thank you. How many people have ever used God's name as a cuss word before? Bible calls that blasphemy. And God says he will not hold us guiltless who use his name in vain. How many people here have ever dishonored their parents before? Everybody. What does that make us? Rebels. And by the way, Jesus also makes it clear that sins don't only apply to your actions, but your thoughts. Your thoughts. He said everyone who lusts after another person in their heart has already committed adultery in the heart. Everyone who has been hatefully angry at someone has already committed murder in their heart because that's where adultery and murder come from. These these feelings and these thoughts in the heart. God holds us accountable for our thoughts. And if you think that's not fair, let me tell you something. If we could plug a brain into your best friend's head and put all of his thoughts on the screen, you would judge him according to his thoughts too. And guess what? If we could put your thoughts on the screen, everybody would judge you according to your thoughts. The only reason we don't do that is we can't see each other's thoughts. But guess who can? The God of the universe who's perfectly holy and is infinitely more offended by sin than we are. So yes, what is in our hearts matters. Every single one of us is guilty of these things. So at the end of it all, we are all, if we're going to be honest, we are lying, thieving, blaspheming, rebelling, adulterous murderers at heart. And that's only like six of the commandments. When we stand before the perfectly righteous God of the universe, his perfect justice has to declare us all guilty unless, unless there is a savior. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He himself never sinned, not once. He always did what was right. He obeyed all 613 of God's laws and he did it perfectly and he did it all the time. He never had a sinful thought. He never committed a sinful action. Why is this important? Because he came into the world to trade places with us. He who is innocent traded places with those who are guilty. He earned heaven and traded his reward with those who earned hell. That's what Jesus did. 
So Jesus was nailed to the cross for every sin that I have ever committed and ever will commit. And he paid it all. And to all to him I owe. Like as sometimes we, we sing that song. This is how God can show mercy. Because Jesus already paid my debt. That's why he could show mercy. Justice requires the debt be paid. If the, my, my debt of sin is not paid and God just lets me go, then he's like the crooked judge that never punishes the criminal and, and there's no satisfaction for justice. Okay, But God doesn't just look the other way. Instead, either I have to pay my debt in hell or Jesus, the perfect one, could pay it for me on the cross where hell was dumped upon him by the Father when the sky, when the sky went dark. Now, once every last sin was paid for, then it can never be paid for again, right? If Jesus pays my debt, the debt's gone. If Jesus pays it, but then I have to pay it, that's double jeopardy. That's not just. The debt is only paid once, either by me in hell or by Jesus on the cross. And since he paid for it for me on the cross, I don't ever have to worry about paying for it. It is done. It's done. And that is how Jesus saves people. He takes their penalty for them. He was born so that he could die for us. So don't let anybody out there ever tell you that God is not love. He didn't have to save any of us. What do we all deserve? We all deserve hell. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If God was to give us what we deserve, if God was to be perfectly fair, then we would all receive justice against our sins, right? But God is merciful. In his love, he chose to show mercy in a way where he still shows justice against our sins on Jesus on the cross, but then shows mercy to us by forgiving us. And how did it all happen? Christmas, the incarnation. It happened by God entering his own creation as a baby, growing to full adulthood, and then going to that cross and dying for us and raising for us. You know what's absolutely crazy? Teaching is so pathetic in churches across America that Barna polls now show a majority of self-identifying evangelicals think it's possible that Jesus sinned during his earthly ministry. That destroys the whole thing. Because if we have a swapping of accounts, if he gets my sin and I get his righteousness, that's what makes, me, that's what makes salvation work. If he sinned and we swap accounts, he gets my sin, I get his, we both go to hell. Right? It is so important to understand this. And that is what Christmas is all about. Linus helped Charlie Brown, but he didn't go far enough. But it was a kid's show, so I get it. Okay? <laughs> the, the famous 19th century preacher, Charles Hayden Spurgeon, he said it best. There's no way I can improve on this. He said that the first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. There's a reason he was called the prince of preachers. <laughs> there, there, there's nothing in you, nothing in me that makes it to where God has to save us. It's a free gift. It's not owed, but it is freely and lovingly given. And it is received by faith alone. But that faith alone changes you. And you will live for him. Okay, just like if there's a root for a plant, you're going to see the fruit. But if there's no fruit, the fruit that the Bible says should come from that faith, then that faith isn't real. Okay, so the, the key is we're supposed to have a real, authentic faith like we saw with the wise men. So just like a response was required of the people in our text, a response is required of you. Are you like Herod? 
Do you hate everything you heard this morning? Will you ball your fist up at God and storm out of here? If so, you're still in your sins. Or are you like the scribes? You hear your dilemma. You see the lengths that God has gone to offer you salvation. But then you respond with apathy and say, I don't care. I don't care. I'll continue to just live my life my way. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll go on, on Christmas and Easter, and that should hedge my bets. That's apathy. That's apathy. And if so, you're still in your sins. Now, you might not care now, but a day comes. A day comes when you will care, when you see the Lord coming in his glory on the clouds. We don't want that to happen to anybody. We want every knee to bow, every heart and tongue to confess. We know that's going to happen. We want it to happen willingly. That way, you're saved, okay? Because on the day Christ comes on the clouds, if you haven't submitted to him, it's too late. You'll be mourning. There's only one right response, and that response is that of the Magi. It's joyfully giving your complete self to the Savior, to worship him, to receive him by faith. Just as the wise men of old came to Jesus, so too must we. They came based on so much less than what we have, right? They had a a little star to guide them, right? We have the perfect word of God. We got the Bible where every single page of this, if you're reading it correctly, every page of it guides you to Jesus Christ, the Savior. We have the the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that testifies in our hearts that Jesus is the Messiah. See, the wise men, they came and saw a baby. We come through the word of God and we see the glorified and risen Lord who, yes, at at one time he was born of a virgin and was a baby that was laid in a manger, but now he reigns as the all-powerful God-man, king of glory at the right hand of the power on high. If we could see him like John the apostle in Revelation, we would fall at his feet in terror at his glory. That is who we behold now, our victorious savior. The wise men saw the Savior before he completed the work for salvation for us. We see the Savior after salvation is perfectly secured. Thus, we have way more reason to joyfully come and fervently worship and give every part of ourselves to this great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, I end with a question. What is your response? The right response, joyful, fervent worship where we give all of ourselves to Jesus. We're going to close, and well, not close the service, but I'm going to close the sermon in prayer. And while I'm praying, you could pray to God for salvation. You don't have to raise your hand and do some little gimmick that happens at some places. It's very simple. As I'm praying, you could pray to God and saying, Lord, I am going to turn away from my sins. I'm going to repent because that's what you've called me to do. And I'm going to give myself to you. I'm going to surrender myself to you. If you do that, you'll be saved. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? But it's a true surrendering. You're confessing he's Lord, master, king, right? If you turn from your sins and you give yourself to Jesus, all your sins are forgiven. You then become a new creature, a new creature, and you have your whole new life ahead of you. And we want to help you with that. So if you do receive Jesus today, come talk to me afterwards because there's more things that, that I want to point out to help you along in your new life. That being said, you could pray all that while I'm praying. But we're going to close in prayer, close the sermon, and then we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper. We'll have one more song, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we just uh, thank you so much for Christmas. 
We thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for entering your own creation as the God-man to live that perfect life, 